Would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, once again, we come to you on this second Sunday of Advent as expectant people that that kingdom will come where we'll see this vision that Isaiah had realized fully. And until that time, we can have the peace that surpasses all understanding because of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I just pray now, Lord, as we look at this text written 600 years before Jesus arrived on the scene, that we would see new truths and realities that would transform us into the people you've called us to be. Think our thoughts, dear Lord. May your words be mine. That you would bend our wills to your will and take every single one of our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, you see that we are in the book of Isaiah, all of Advent, and we're doing this because as Christians, we believe when you see these great messianic promises, they scream, is Jesus Christ? I mean, it, it, all scholars, well, it's obviously Jesus Christ, and that's a whole other discussion among scholars, but for those of us who know Jesus and walk with Jesus, they're, they're life-transforming. It makes all the difference in the world. And so what we're going to see, if you open up your Bibles to Isaiah 11, is our reading for this week. We're going to see in what the heading calls the righteous rule of the branch, we're going to see so much more than just a title. What we're going to see and what we learn, which is life transforming, is the wisdom of the king, the justice of the king, and the identity of the king. All right? The wisdom of the king, the justice of the king, and the identity of the king. So first, let's look at the king's wisdom. We see this in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on this messianic king. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. Notice here that might and counsel go together. That word counsel is wisdom, just like wisdom and understanding, all right? It's, it's all one thought that Isaiah is giving here in the Hebrew. Um, it means not only does this king have the power to do what needs to be done, he also knows what needs to be done as well as the power to carry it out. Notice further down, in, uh, he says, that he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what he hears. The second part of verse 3. That this king makes proper decisions. Imagine the most stupid, foolish decision you ever made in your life. Okay? It was always done because you looked at appearances. It looked right at the time, you know. Boy, he looked right at the time. She looked right at the time. Um, that financial decision looked really good at the time. Um, everything seemed fine, but you didn't have the wisdom. You didn't have the foresight that this king has. This king has perfect wisdom and the power to carry it out. And we see wisdom all throughout the scriptures throughout Advent and Christmas. This is what, what, is what the whole... Magi passage is about 
in Matthew, when the wise men come to see Jesus, what do they do? They bow down and worship him. That's a metaphor. Oh, it's a historical event too, but it's a metaphor for us to see that the wisdom of this world pales in comparison to the wisdom of our king. Especially when it comes to Jesus' plan for salvation for us, the way in which God saved the world, which began at Christmas time, the wisdom of the world looks at that as absolute foolishness. Because Jesus' career, ministry career, is also seen as absolute foolishness. We saw in Luke how they responded to him. Everything Jesus does turns the wisdom of the world upside down. Let me give you two examples. First, think of the world's wisdom paradigm of how you would bring Messiah into the world. All right? If we were to bring Messiah into the world, we'd strategize and probably bring Messiah into the world at the World Cup final or at the Super Bowl. We'd have the blue angels fly over with Christmas-colored trailers, and they'd peel off. Then you'd have Apache helicopters come in with the 82nd Airborne, and out come with Jesus parachuting down in a gold suit, right? Something like that. Or Times Square, you know, New Year's Eve. What a great time to announce Messiah, you know? The whole world is watching. We're in London, New Year's Eve, or Tokyo in New Year's Eve. The whole cities are gathered. What a great PR, Lord. Just come this way. But is that what he did? No. God was born and laying in a trough of straw. If you've ever been in a barn, they don't smell that nice. All right? And I'm sure it was probably a lower level of a house, actually. Um, and sheep, urine. The king is born. You know, we've all done strategic planning at one time in our careers. You know, you throw up a whiteboard and you say, okay, what's our goal? Well, think of, we're going to do this for God, all right? This is God's goal. He wants to be spoken of 2,000 years from now. He wants the people to have him be the center of their lives, he wants his teaching to be reflected in millions of people throughout the world and wants about one-third of the world to be following him. Would we do it the way God did? How do we get there? Well, here's what God did. He was born in a backwater town, raised in Nazareth, who was seen as a redneck town, stayed intentionally away from the religious power centers, the academic power centers, the social power centers, and the political power centers of the institutions. And by the way, when he hit the pinnacle of his career, he was stripped naked and executed publicly. Does that sound like a strategy that we would pursue? No. But that's what God does because the world's wisdom pales in comparison to God's wisdom. A second way the world's wisdom opposes God's wisdom is just simply the way the world violates, Christmas violates the, the power paradigms of our world. Such as, um, as Christians, 
we know Christmas is a miracle. You have the story of Christmas, a pre-existent God, born of a virgin, coming to the world. The world can't wrap their mind around that. They just can't. Because in the mid-1800s came a, the naturalism movement, which said science can explain everything. Everything we need to know, we'll find out, and we're going to keep learning much, much more as years go on. We just keep getting better and better and better. And so, therefore, there's no such thing as a pre-existent God. There's no such thing as a virgin birth, because virgin births will happen. All the supernatural miracles were seen as absolutely foolish. So that crept into the church. And we were birthed out of a church which, which bought naturalism lock, stock, and barrel, by the way. Because this book is filled with supernatural events and people who've had the supernatural movement of the Holy Spirit upon their lives. Because it's foolish to the world. But this is the way God moves. The world says you can't believe in a pre-existing deity. You can't believe in a virgin birth. You can't believe in a bodily resurrection. You can't believe in an inerrant, inspired, infallible Bible. You can't believe that everybody needs to be miraculously converted through the power of the Holy Spirit being born again. You can't believe those things. Well, so there's been a division, hasn't there? And it's fascinating. The, when you really look at what they extracted in those churches who believe that uh, all the miracles are, are gone or they define the miracles for what they want to define them, they're all in steep decline. Fact. Steep decline. And it only existed in prosperous countries. It doesn't fly in the rest of the world. You probably know that Africa went from 5% Christian to 50% Christian in the 20th century. Korea went from 0% Christian to 40% Christian, and it's booming in China today. Nigeria, the seventh largest nation in the world, it has grown. I've been here 12 years. It's grown from 21 million to 24 million. Three million people in addition to what they had following Jesus. Because without supernatural, it's just self-improvement, self-esteem. And that doesn't change anybody. So over and over, the world will look and say, that doesn't make sense. Get with the program. But the message of Christmas and Advent is that God punched the hole between heaven and earth. God entered into our world and broke into time and space so that there is hope. Now there is mercy. That there is a future and there's power that will change you. And they will always laugh at it. But keep in mind, the wisdom of this world pales in comparison to the wisdom of God. Secondly, we see the king's justice. Verse 4, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. At first, it seems to say in English, he's going to judge the needy, because usually 
judge means to condemn, right? It, it seems that but that's what it's reading, but that's not what it means. It literally means he will make things just for the needy. He will, the Hebrew word there, dal or dalim, is a word that means downtrodden, people without power in the culture. He will give decisions on their behalf. He will stand in their place and exercise his power on their behalf. And all of a sudden, you're reading that and you're thinking, okay, great, this king's going to bring in some great social justice, but he doesn't stop there. Verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. Verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt, verse 9, or destroy in all my holy mountain. This is poetry going on here. And what Isaiah is seeing here is that this king is not simply going to make the world a little bit better. He is going to get rid of death, get rid of disease, get rid of violence, get rid of suffering. He will make everything right. Here we're told this king is about to care for the poor. But it's not until Christmas Day we realize the depth of his care for the poor because Jesus identified as the poor. When Mary and Joseph brought him to the naming ceremony and the circumcision, they could only offer as a sacrifice two turtle doves. My friends, that is utter poverty they're in. And he was a carpenter. He wasn't a general. He could have been. But he humbled himself and lived among us. And his whole ministry, again, turning it upside down, he came he, he had a concern for the poor. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind, as well as preached the good news of the gospel. And I think what this means for us is that we need to, in the bare minimum, have our eyes open to where the Lord's at work around us. Because on one side, I don't know about you, if you've been out in the world just talking with people, when we start talking as Christians and gossiping the gospel as Christians, we're looked at stupid, as stupid, right? We don't have any power. (laughs) We don't have much influence anymore in the culture. That's not necessarily a bad thing for the church because the real church tends to flourish when it's not a country club church feel in the culture, all right? So in one sense, he, he's on our side, all right? Don't forget that. But on the other side, let's open our eyes and see where we're at work, where the Lord is at work, rather, and make sure that we're meeting the needs of our neighborhoods, where we live, where we work, where we play, and reaching out to those who need a hand up. At the bare minimum, we need to do that. And it's important that we do our partnership with CRS. It's important that we do Operation Christmas Child. But nothing's better than reaching out to people right in our neighborhoods, right in our workplace, right at our schools who need a hand up. At the bare minimum, we should be doing at least that. Rubbing shoulders with those in a non-patronizing way who need the love of God in their lives. That's the king's justice. The third point here is we see also the king's identity. 
I mentioned earlier that this whole season is a miracle, that Christmas is a miracle in and of itself. But it also, uh, and there's a miracle in this text, and I didn't see it until this week. Um, It also shows why we're looked at as crazy people (laughs) in the world. The identity of the king, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A shoot that comes out of a stump or a branch that, you know, means you've descended from someone. So obviously, this Messiah king will descend from Jesse, who's the father of David. So this Messiah will come from David's line. All right, but if you go down to verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Your root is something you've grown out of. So what it's saying is Jesse came from him, and David came from him. So how can someone be both a shoot and a root of Jesse and David? How can someone be both a descendant of David and Jesse at the same time be the source of David and Jesse? There's only one answer as crazy as the world thinks it is. That this is the creator God who's the root of all of us. Who's the source of all of us. Was born into the world as a weak human being as he came as a descendant of David. Jesus Christ, fully human, fully God, is the miracle of Christmas, but it's also why Christmas is so category-breaking for the world. Because in religious views, you got two real views around our culture. Number one, you have law religion. Okay? We understand that. Keep the Ten Commandments. It's black and white. You know, live on a God. Pray. God will bless you, and if you don't perform up to it, you're going to hell. That's law religion. The other kind of religion is complete acceptance. God is love. You decide what's right or wrong for you, and you shouldn't tell anybody else whether their choices are wrong, but basically, God is a God of love, and therefore, everyone is included, everyone is accepted, no matter who or where they are, no matter how they behave. And that's what the world believes, right? And those are real easy to believe. Christmas shows the revelation of God is neither of those because those two are all centered on self. You make up what you want to believe and follow. It's up to you to be good and bad in the law religion. It's totally up to you if you accept it. It's all about you. You don't need a rescue. You don't need a savior. In either of those. But the revelation of God in Jesus Christ through this peaceful king is infinitely more vast and rich because the one born in a manger is not just human. He's fully divine. He is God in the flesh. This king will come and say, don't worry about trying to pull yourself up and be good for God. I will come down and be God for you. I will perform for you because that's how much I love you. He's not just to come to tell us the law. He's come to be the law for us upon the cross. 
And that's why Christianity is so transforming. It's not a religion of the law. It's not just a religion of acceptance. It's a revelation of costly grace. Every one of us has done things we deserve to be punished for, condemned for. And in God's economy, that means God's wrath is upon us. Wrath is his settled, controlled anger toward all the injustice and wrong in the world, of which some we're responsible for. So therefore, there's wrath upon our sins, but God comes into the world and goes to the cross for us and takes that upon himself for us. And he does so at an infinite cost to himself. When I look at that, not just follow the law and not just do my own thing, when I see not just acceptance, but God's love satisfying his own wrath for me, that changes me. That melts my heart. If I embrace that, you know, that will transform me. Who would love me like that? So on one hand, that convicts me not just to live any old way I want. On the other hand, it doesn't put any pressure on me to say I have to live up to all of God's standards because Jesus did that for me, which is my motivation to live unto him. So when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel, he has. He's ransomed each and every one of us. So the question from this text, I think, which is begging, what have you based your life upon this past week? What are you hoping to help you get up tomorrow morning to to face life and to face some of the suffering which we will all endure and eventually our inevitable death? Are you hoping that it will give you just good self-esteem? Are you hoping that it will give you self-worth? How about your career? If you're a young person, how about I'll get into that perfect school, which will give me the perfect career. Is it the hope that you're going to find that incredible someone? You know, that perfect man, that perfect woman, so I can have the perfect kids, 2.5 of them with the 4.0 average GPA? Is it love and romance? I don't know. What are you hoping to get you through life? If it's anything but a living relationship with Jesus Christ and his people, the church, I'm here to tell you that if it's anything but that, the world will disappoint you and will desert you because everything does except Jesus Christ and God's love for you. And Advent and Christmas mean the wisdom of God has been revealed. He's come to do something for you that you couldn't do for yourself. He's come to miraculously break into this world. Therefore, you must embrace it for yourself. If you walked into my house, I couldn't bring it this morning because it was too much to carry. Uh, My mother-in-law, 30 years ago, gave me this beautiful print of Edward Hicks, The Peaceable Kingdom. He was a Quaker minister who was a painter, early American folk artist. And he did 62 different versions 
of Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. Because Quakers aren't supposed to be uh, joyful, happy people. <laughs> you have to be serious. And so uh, they, 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 they don't fight wars. They're very peaceful people. But also, they can't be too worldly. So this was his way to express himself. And it's a beautiful painting. And the painting that I was given has Virginia's natural bridge. If any, it's off I-81, south of, north of Roanoke, south of Lexington. It's this beautiful natural bridge, and she gave it to me because I'm a sucker for Virginia. You guys know that. And in every single painting, they have a little child hugging a lion, laying down next to a lamb with a wolf and a calf. And in this painting, they have William Penn. I don't know what he's doing in Virginia because he was in Philadelphia. <laughs> but there's William Penn shaking hands with Native Americans like the settlers are me, that he envisioned that if we all walk with Jesus Christ, this is what we have. This is what could be. Isaiah is saying, the king is coming. Jesus says, he's come to give each and every one of us a peace that surpasses all understanding, says St. Paul. And because of that peace that he's given us, the world might think us a fool, but God thinks us wise. And we have peace now, and oh, one day, you'll be able to put a lion around, you hand around a lion, and he won't eat you. He'll be eating grass, like in Edward Hicks's painting. Read Revelation 21. It's coming. So my friends, embrace the wisdom of God. Let's be people of great justice to our neighbors because we have a king that's been revealed to us. And let's walk with him and one another. In Jesus' name, amen.